Cove Productions presents the Solo in South Philly podcast with your host and local legal whiz, Wit Knowledge, Mark Kachi. What's good, everyone? Welcome to the Solo in South Philly podcast. Our season one is called Law School Reunion. It is a remix with the homies from the Midwest side. Each episode, I'll be reuniting with a different law school colleague. We will discuss what led them to law school, their law school experience, and what they do now. Our guest today is Manisha Vadgama. Manisha started off as an employment law defense attorney doing workers' compensation. Then she got hired with the district attorney's office in Ventura, California, where she worked for about five years. She returned home to work for the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office for five more years. Seeking a new challenge, she currently works at the California Department of Justice in the Attorney General Special Prosecutions Unit. She prosecutes anything from political corruption, political fraud, white collar crimes, and organized retail thefts. This is also the unit that Governor Newsom recently made in charge of handling officer-involved shooting cases. Manisha was a couple of semesters ahead of me in law school. She's a classmate that gave me much needed guidance when I first started. In anything you do, it is always helpful to have someone who has been there before you to go to for advice. Manisha, her now husband, Eddie, and her roommate, Elise, shared a California bond with me, and we had some great times when we weren't busy with school. I've watched Manisha live an interesting professional life since she graduated, and I wanted to have her on to share her journey with us. Let's welcome Manisha to the program. How's it going, Manisha? Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm doing good. Great to talk to you after all these years. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right. So, you know, we met in law school. Let's talk a little bit about life before law school. So what led you to law school? Um, You know, I think I was one of those kids that, like, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Like, the quintessential, like, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be, you know what I mean? But I, I, li- I literally had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew what I loved and I had certain passions for, you know, helping people and fairness and equality. Um, and I think it, a lot of it stemmed from like the area that I grew up in. My brother and I, I have two brothers, but my older brother and I are really close in age. And in our community, we were like the only Indian family. Um And so we stuck out like sore thumbs, like quintessential, like we had the one eyebrow, I was hairy, I was super tall, just looked very different. And when I was in elementary school, I got picked on, picked on a lot by kids. Um, I was thinking about that a lot um, before, you know, I came onto this podcast, like what brought me here. And I just remember like walking into class and like the kids would draw like little red dots on their foreheads and they would call it like. Gandhi dots or just say like obviously the most like ignorant you know inappropriate things and it was years and years of that and I sort of throughout the years became obsessed with like the idea of like how is this fair how is this okay like I under very much understood like where are the adults in all of this like the teachers and the educators um and then I sort of grew into myself and it changed but I so I still was obsessed with the idea of like protecting those who I felt weren't protected. And I made that a point when I was in school and I got really involved with like, you know, school council stuff like ASB and I wanted to help and make a difference and a change. Um, And then I think what happened was 
you know, I was in high school and I still didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was an athlete. I was really big in sports. I played softball. Um, I played in high school and I, I played on a travel team and I always thought like I was going to go away, um, to college and play sports. Then I wasn't super into academics. I just never really felt like I was smart enough to do anything, you know, profound or great, or, you know, I just thought I'm going to be the athlete and just get like some random major, you know? Um, but I got injured my senior year of high school and it sort of took me out of being scouted and being able to go that route with sports. Um, and so I ended up staying locally and going to our local junior college. Um, and I played actually there at the junior college, which was an incredible experience because I didn't realize how competitive and intense that, you know, whole process would be, but it really sort of changed my mindset and made me super disciplined. And I had professors at my junior college that just completely changed my life and saw through um, me and saw through things that like, I didn't see of myself and really pushed the envelope of like, you know, I'm going to get these kids in this community out there to become something, you know, significant in their life and for the community. And so I think while I was at my junior college, I just had this one, um, professor, his name's professor Falcon. And I actually, he's still there. And I would walk into class. I'd walk in, um, you know, after we do like training in the morning for softball. So I'd be up at like 5am training and I'd go to his class like in the morning. Um, and I was like dead tired and I'd roll in, and I wouldn't take my backpack off and, but I would do all my assignments. I would do all my homework. And then he just started calling me out on my shit. Like, Hey, you're not a dumb jock. Like, stop trying to like play that role. That's not you. Like I read your paper. This was like profound. And he would read my papers like in class in front of everybody. And I'd be mortified, but then I would just start seeing like these reactions from different students. Um, and I would see his reaction. Like he was so proud and impressed that like an 18 year old could like think beyond the norm of like what he was asking us. Um, and he was just so cool. Really pushed me to like start following the legal profession. Um, and that was simply because of my work of like what he saw in my homework or my writing or my advocacy or whatever it was that he was asking us to do. And he was the first one that sort of planted the seed of like, you should consider going to law school. Wow. That's a, there's a lot, a lot, a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. One thing I'd like to point out is about the legal profession. I, I think we're both lucky that it was, it is the way it is. So people that figure out things later or, or bloom later still have that opportunity because with, with being a lawyer, you know, it doesn't matter what you major in. Um, a lot of people are career changers and become lawyers. I think about people that I know that are doctors and we're, we're talking about people that throughout high school and college, maybe got a couple of B's, you know, they spent a year of college studying for their MCAT. And like, right. if you're figuring it out later in college it might be too late. Um, right. And I mean, I know a lot of people that are dentists because as smart as they were, they couldn't get into the medical school of their choice. Um, but with, with law, it's so great because you, you can start anywhere, you can figure it out, it can click. I mean, a lot of people went to school with, it clicked in law school for them. Correct, um, correct, yeah. And then, and then they got to where they are. Um, yeah, as far as growing up, I mean, that that had to be tough. You grew up where in Southern California? I know in the LA area. 
Yeah. So we're in Los Angeles and I grew up in a city called Bellflower. Um, and so there wasn't, you know, there just wasn't a lot of us. I didn't even know that many Indians like existed. My parents later moved to a city called Cerritos. Um, and we, so I finished my, um, last two years of high school there. And I remember my first day and I was like, wait a minute, there's more Indians like in, in LA, like idea. So I went from a school with virtually no Indians. I mean, in high school, we had one other Indian kid who actually was my brother's friend. Um, but that was it, you know, it was the three of us. And then when I went to Cerritos, that's all there was, was like Asians and Indians. So it was a complete culture shock for me, um, to sort of see the difference. And, and these two cities are only literally like 10 minutes apart from each other, but that's very LA, right? You, yeah. you can be five minutes and it's just like night and day. So yeah, it, it you know, as it was when I was a kid and it was hard, it was, it was hard. I feel like I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't go through all of that, you know? Yeah, definitely, you know, toughens you up and, and gives you a certain perspective. Right, right. Um, so how do you, how'd you end up at, at the Thomas M. Cooley Law School? <laughs> yeah, so I went to, um, after my junior college, I transferred to UC San Diego. Um, and that's where I met you know, my husband, Eddie, who you know, and mm -hmm. I majored in political science, which, you know, is great about the laws. It actually doesn't matter what you major in. You can go to law school. I mean, you and I knew friends who were, you know, econ majors or bio majors, and they went to law school and they did really well. So it doesn't matter. Um, but I did the quintessential political science major. Um, and then I, um, applied everywhere. And I actually was born, my parents immigrated to the U.S. Um, in the 80s and they moved to Michigan. So I was born in Michigan. So when oh, I was, wow. yeah. So when I was applying to call or law schools, um, I just did like a search of law schools in California and a lot and law schools in Michigan. And I happened to get into our law school and they gave me a little scholarship. So I said, okay, it'd be great to get out of state for a few years and figure that out. So that's why I ended up there. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so you were open to the idea to move into Michigan. Yes, I was. Eddie, who, you know, ended up coming a year later, mm -hmm. um, was not a fan of the whole, like moving to cold weather and whatever, but I loved it. I knew it was temporary and I wanted, I wanted to do something different for a few years, you know? Yeah. So what was that adjustment like? Um, you know, law school's hard, right? And I, I think that I'm, maybe you've addressed this in your other podcasts. Um, our school in particular was really hard because it was like the school that it's easy to get into, but it's very difficult to stay in. Right. So mm -hmm. we lost a lot of friends who didn't make it. That sounds horrible. We had a lot of friends who academically like were kicked out of the school. Yep. Yep. Um, I think probably the first day for you too. You know, the joke is like in in a normal law school setting, look to your left, look to your right. Um, only one of you will still be here, like for graduation. But in our law school, I remember my first day, um, the professors to your left, look to your right, look in front, and look, only one of you will still be here. And I remember thinking like, damn, dude, really? Is it that bad? And it was, you know, Cooley, Cooley 
they were very clear. You can get in easily, but can you stay in? And I think that that environment was so stressful and intense, but it also, if you look at all of us who've graduated and now we have our careers, it made us gritty, right? We're, we're little fighters. Like I'm constantly fighting for a spot, like in the world, I feel like even now I've been practicing almost 11 years now. And I still feel like I'm constantly fighting for like what I deserve, but you sort of get that grit at our law school, you know, where you're just like, you're, you're essentially fighting to survive, like just being able to stay in school, which is intense because a normal law school, let's say you go to UCLA law, the hardest part is getting in. But once you're in, they do everything humanly possible to help you be successful and keep you in school and help you get good grades. But our schools, like you got, you got to work to stay in. Yeah, not not only that. I think you would agree with this because we have we went to we both majored in political science from mm-hmm. a UC, and as hard as that was, you know, you had things that padded your grades. I wouldn't say padded your grades, but lessened the severity of the of the final exam. You know, you had papers. You may have had a midterm. All these other things. So. You knew like going into the final, like if you had a bad day, you weren't going home with an F. Right. And, and you weren't getting kicked out of school. Right. Right. <laughs> so to be in some foreign state, taking out loans in your own name yeah. and then saying, all right, yeah, you went to class for 10 weeks. This That doesn't matter today. Yeah. Right. You put in all this time. That doesn't matter. What matters is three hour exam. Like, you know, how you do today is what's going to determine the grade you get and if you get to stay here or not. Yeah. That's a great deal of pressure to put onto somebody. Yeah, it's wild if you think about it. It's like, and I, and I don't, you know, I, I understand the concept of it, but it's not super practical when if you relate that whole concept to being an actual attorney, you know what I mean? Like when you're an attorney, you have time to prep and prepare. And obviously you need to, when you're in court, think on your feet and be able to make quick you know, sort of decisions and responses, but the whole law school mentality. Yeah. It's, it's intense, man. (laughs) It's intense. Yeah. So what was, uh, what was your experience like during law school? Like, was it difficult, was it difficult to begin with? Was it easy to begin with? Like, did you get along with everyone? Did, Did you jive with the professors? What was the student experience like for you? You know, I think for me, my theme has always been in my life. Do I belong sort of imposter syndrome? Like, is this, you know, am I, am I where I should be? Can I make it? Can I hack it? Like, I don't think I'm smart enough. It's always like, I'm second guessing myself and I'm always having to prove myself wrong. And, you know, it's just this whole sort of every big step in my life, I go through this and So I get into law school and I'm there and, you know, you're by yourself. You don't know anybody. You're in another state. And I I made friends pretty quickly. And, you know, a lot of us are still very good friends. I mean, some of my dearest friends are from our law school. Um, But I really struggled that first year, like academically, because I had that imposter syndrome where I'm like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm smart enough. I don't think I can hack it, you know, um, And then I remember my parents came out to visit towards the end of the year before summer. And I was staying for summer school and I hadn't gotten good grades my first year. And I was so nervous, like, shit, I'm going to get kicked out. And we had just seen like a lot of our friends get kicked out for not surviving academically. Um, 
And I, I remember I did really poorly on like our property exam and I'm like, oh my God, this might kick me out of school. And my mom and dad came and I had this like complete breakdown with my dad. And I'm like, I just don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't think I'm smart enough. And my dad said, listen, it's never going to be about how smart you are, right? You have to change that mindset. It's always going to be who works harder. You can be with the smartest person in the room, but if you work harder, you outwork that person, you will always be more successful, smartest person in the room. And my dad is like the epitome of like that man works. Like when, when we were little, he'd come home, he'd help bed. Um, and then he would stay till like two, three in the morning and then get up again at like five. And that was just his thing. And he's almost 70. He still works. He loves it. He still stays up at all hours. And so I got to watch that over the years of like, my dad is objectively a very brilliant, smart man, but he works his ass off to get there. You know what I mean? Um, so I, when we had this talk in law school, I thought to myself, okay, you might not believe in yourself, but give yourself a chance, work your ass off, see if it works, you know, study harder than everybody. Don't party um, a ton, just stay in focus, like work hard. And it was the summers when I took research and writing and I just hunkered down. Like I, I didn't go out and Mark, you know, in, in the Midwest and the East coast, I bet you had the same experience where you're like, oh, these people are losing their minds. Cause in the summertime, everyone wilds out because it's so cold in the winter. And so when it's nice weather, everyone loses it and parties like it's like doomsday every day. <laughs> so I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I stayed in, I focused, I worked my butt off. I went to like, um, I had that research and writing class. So I went to professor like, um, meetings when you could sit down and go over your papers with them. And I just worked and I worked and I worked. And then I ended up actually booking that class, which, you know, means you got like the highest grade in the class and you get this award. And I never got academic awards. I was never that smart person in school. You know, that was always my brother. He's a freaking genius. And just, it comes very easy to him. And that was when I realized like, okay, I can do this. I just have to put in the work constantly and eventually working that hard that leads to that confidence, right? Like, and I, in, in every trial that I do till this day, and I've done a lot of trials as a prosecutor, every trial, I have that, that whole imposter, imposter syndrome, like, shit, I can't do this. Right. Um, and then I tell myself, nope, but I work my ass off. I got this. You know what I mean? And I do when I'm in trial, it's like, we eat, live my family, we eat, live and sleep that trial and everyone's on board. And my husband takes over like the family stuff and my parents help out. And cause everyone knows like I'm MIA and I'm like hunkered down and that's all I'm focused on for those weeks or months, you know? Um, so that whole, that was like my experience at Cooley was gaining that again, grit to be able to realize like, this is how you're going to do this. And it's worked for me after all these years. So well, what you're, what you described as your dad's philosophy sounds a lot like, uh, a guy from Southern California, or who was in Southern, John Wooden, okay. um, the legendary UCLA coach. Uh -huh. And I highly recommend all his books. <clears throat> I turn, you know, I turn my wife on to him and she loves him. But one of his most famous quotes was, you know, success is the byproduct of hard work. Yep. And his thing was always like, don't think about winning. Don't. Right. He's like, right. just put in the work. The right. results 
the results will yield from that effort that you're inputting into it. And I, I think that's such a good way to look at it. And there's so many examples that you could look about in real life and like, think about like, okay, <clears throat> you know, yes, Tom Brady won all these Super Bowls. Yes, Kobe Bryant has done all these things. But then let's talk about what they do day in, day out. Yep. And they're probably thinking about more, I got to do this, than I got to win game. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're the ones that like, when their teammates are like partying in the summer on off season, they're the ones getting up at five in the morning and putting in the work. You know what I mean? Yep. They're the ones that are like, you know, and I don't, some people call it unhealthy. I just call it, you know, you're preparing to be like the greatest, you know, you, you, you sort of eat, live and sleep that like everything you do is towards that success. You know, every decision, every action, every plan that you make throughout your day goes to that, whether you're going to be successful in that particular thing that you're doing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, one thing I'll, I'll mention in the preview, were there anyone that you know, that, that gave you guidance? Because one of the things I'm thankful for you and one of the reasons I actually wanted to have you on is we talked about that work, but I, I was, I'm always a huge proponent of working smarter, right? And one of those ways to do this, like I got hit hard in undergrad because like I was on academic probation my first semester and I just didn't really figure out a system of how to study and then things got better. Um, when I got to law school, I was working hard in the beginning, first few weeks. And then I just kind of had an epiphany and I was like, no, I think, you know, like, like I thought early on, I thought, for example, I think more effort needs to be put in the outline as opposed to reading the case, because I need to understand where the case fits in better than what the facts of the case of an individual case is. Right. Um, and, you know, you were a few semesters ahead of me. Uh, and there was a few others. Jason Drew was one of them, a uh, couple other people. But, you know, I spoke candidly with you about things and you guys were like very supportive of like, you know, take this professor, um, do this for this exam. Oh, here's an old outline I used. These sorts of things. Did you have anyone that, that gave you that sort of guidance that was an oh, opportunity yeah. to you? Yes. Okay. So I had my good friend, Shelly, who I'm still dear friends with. Um, I had Francois. Um I had my friend, Patricia, who is amazing. She, she's still a friend of mine. And she um, would be like, girl, I was on academic probation my first two years. Like, you got this. Like, this is what you do. And um, I, in every field, but especially in our legal field, like, you need to be the person that you wish you had when you were younger, a few years younger. And so I feel like if it wasn't for them, I would have never survived because I did so, you know, poorly grade wise, my first year there. And I needed to see that, like, I was going to get out of it. Like I would be okay. And so that was like, you know, Patricia and Shelly and Francois, like they were like, Hey, I went through the same thing. You got to work smarter. And like, these are the outlines, same thing that like, and I'm so happy to hear that you had that experience with me, but same thing. Like, you know, we have to help each other and protect each other. And, um, you know, I, I feel like, especially those of us who we look different, um, come from different places and different backgrounds. I think that like in the legal field, minorities are significantly underrepresented. Right. So I always try and make an effort to like reach out to like young women who I see struggling or to like people of color who I see struggling. Cause I'm like, listen, we've been there. I get it. But like, you can do this. Like, this is how you do it. Like game 
plan. And so, yeah, man, I mentors, people who've just like looked out for me and protected me, I wouldn't be where I am today, but for all these people, you know, and you, you have your parents and, and your parents hopefully love and adore you. And they think the world for me, of you, but it really takes those people outside of your family, family nucleus to help you get to where you want to go, make you believe in yourself, support you. You know what I mean? Push you. And I for sure had that at Cooley. Um, and I think sort of, that's how all of us survived. We, we sort of, we all kind of joke, like you're in like a war zone and like, you are like your, your family and you have to protect each other and support each other. Because if you don't, you're getting taken out, you're done. Like you're, you're, you're leaving, you're getting kicked out, you know? And yeah. I really, really felt that fully the three years I was there. I mean, at least with the friends that we all made, you know? Yeah. I mean, there was, there was definitely Michigan natives, but it was this feeling of like, none of us are from here. None of us are probably going to stay here. Right. We're all here together, like almost like a military situation. Like we're stationed here. Yeah. Right? We're all stationed here together. Yeah. Okay. It's a long weekend. Let's, let's have a party or let's right. have Thanksgiving dinner together. Cause we don't want to go home or, right. Oh, we all finished finals. Let's go celebrate that, that sort of thing. So yeah, there's, right. the camaraderie is unparalleled. I, I yep. feel. Yep. Yep. And I feel like that's why our friends like we're lifers because we've just been through something that like is indescribable. Like no one will ever know what that experience was like, you know? Mm -hmm. So talk about graduation. Uh, I'm guessing there was never, there was never a doubt that you were going back, back to Cali, Cali, correct? Yeah, no, there's never a doubt. I sort of, my brothers and I, you know, we always had this thing where like, we didn't grow up with family here in the States. Like everyone is in England. Our, our fam, our, both my mom and dad were born in Africa. Um, my dad lived in Africa for years there. And then he didn't move to England until, um, he was a teenager. And my mom, um, lived in Africa until I believe she was maybe six and then moved to India for a little bit and then, and then lived in England. So our whole family ended up migrating from Africa to England and they stayed in England, but my parents moved to the States. And so, um, yeah, it was always just the five of us. And, um, my uncle ended up coming later. So then it was the five of us and my uncle and then his family, but we always sort of missed out on that, like family cousin thing. Um, and so I think in the back of all of our heads is like, do whatever we can to stay close home so we can grow up in that environment that we missed out on. And it's great because we all have that now, but yeah, in the back of my head, like I'm going back to California. Gotcha. So let's talk about bar prep, bar exam, all that fun stuff. Yeah. So I graduated, um, sat for the bar in California. I do think that's sort of the one disadvantage that you have if you go to a state out of school is you're not taking classes, um, geared towards your state bar subject. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of, I felt like catching up to do when I studied for the bar. Um, I definitely feel like that whole imposter syndrome creeped back in when I first studied for the bar. Um, I had a really hard time. I just went in this like deep, dark hole of depression, severe anxiety. I wasn't sleeping. I was having panic attacks. Um, I put so much pressure on myself because again, it's the whole like, you know, it doesn't matter how well you did in law school and what your grades were, you're not going to be a lawyer unless you pass this test. 
And California was one of the very few states at the time that had a three-day exam. So after the second day, you're like, I cannot survive another day of, you know, eight hours of an exam. And the passage rate, I mean, it's sort of like their claim to fame, which is sort of a joke if you think about it, but their their claim to fame in California is like the passage rate is like significantly lower than any other state. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's a hard bar. And I, I really put all that pressure on myself. So I didn't pass the first time and I actually didn't even want to take it because I knew I wasn't going to pass. I knew I was not ready. I just, I was, my anxiety got, took over it just took over my life. And I knew that I didn't prepare the way I needed to, to pass this. And like a day or two before the test, I, you know, I go to my dad and I'm like, I can't take this exam. Like I'm going to fail. Like I'm not, I'm not going to, what's the point. And I thought my dad would be like, you're taking the test. Like, don't be ridiculous. And he's like, you know what? You take this test as a practice exam, just get the experience of taking the test. And so if you don't pass the second time you take it, you will pass because you already know what the experience is like. You know, it didn't kill you. You can visualize it. You can attack it in a different light. Just so take it for a practice test, move on. And then you're going to take it again if you don't pass and you'll pass. And I'm like, okay. And that support is what I needed to be like, it's going to be okay. You know, you never want to disappoint your parents. And I really felt like I was going to disappoint them if I didn't pass. Then they weren't, they were so supportive. So I failed. I was devastated. Um, I like looked up every like famous lawyer who's failed the bar. Um, Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama, you know what I mean? I'm like, okay, I'm not alone, but it was still a really shitty experience. Um, And with with California, wasn't there a story where like the president of Stanford failed it recently, like took it to try to take it or something like that? Yeah. I mean, the test is just, you know, it's intense and they try and say objective, but is it, you know, like obviously the multiple choices objective, um, cause it's A, B, C or D, but a lot of it is, you know, essay writing and what, what grader are you getting? Are they having a good day? Are they having a bad day? Did their kid just piss them off? So they're going to grade me harder. Like you just don't know, you know? Um, yeah. So there's so many stories about like, you know, profound, brilliant people from like Harvard and Stanford, and they didn't pass the first time. Um, so I became really obsessed with the like, okay, they still made it. They were okay. Um, so what I did the second time was I went back to like, you know, what works for me. And I knew I have to work hard, but I have to work smart. So I would get up every morning. I would go to the gym, not to like, not for, you know, aesthetic purposes, but it was really for my mental health. I knew I wouldn't survive it if I didn't take care of myself physically and, you know, physical is mental and mental is physical. So I worked out every single day. Um, I would go straight to the library, which I know is gross, but I didn't care. I was so focused. Eddie still is annoyed that I like wouldn't shower after I'm like, dude, I got it. This is how I'm going to survive this. (laughs) So I'd go straight to the library I'd steady all day there. And I was just disciplined. I was focused. I was motivated. And I made it an effort to be like, I'm going to figure out this exam where there's no way that they're going to trick me, where I'm going to recognize when an ant, when the questions are an actual question or a test question, right? Which, you know, they throw in test questions to see if they're going to use it next year or the year after. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I worked my ass off mark and I really did. I remember sitting in that exam and giggling because I actually could recognize, oh yeah, this is a normal question that they always ask in multiple different ways. Or 
oh, this is an interesting question. This is one of their text questions, you know? And I was that, like, that's how hard I worked. But I think that was all the discipline of like, also taking care of my mental health was probably more important than the actual studying aspect of the bar. So I passed the second time and it was great. It was a good experience. That's awesome. Before we go go further, what is this about? I know there's California bar is difficult for a number of reasons, but is there an element of it? Like I always hear people talk about community property or something. Is, is, yeah. that, is that the hardest part that's California unique? Um, yeah. So I think there's, there's just, I think there's a lot more sub it's been so long. So now I don't really fully remember, but there's a lot more subjects on the California bar. Most States are first day essay, second day, multiple choice, and then you're done. Right. Mm -hmm. California at the time they've changed it very recently, but at the time it was first day essays, second day, multiple choice, third day essays, you know? And so um, and then the multiple subjects, but yes, we have this whole community property subject that is very new, a very different concept than like what we learned in Michigan. Um, so you really had to like, you know, in Michigan or in law school, you have a whole semester to learn about, like learn about a subject, right? In, if we were in California, we would probably have taken a community property class, but right. Michigan, we didn't. So you have essentially six weeks to learn the entire bar exam plus a few new subjects that you didn't learn in law school, you know? It's, it's, it's like what? One, one Barbary, <coughs> one Barbary lecture, right? That you got exactly to... for like two hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, all right. You, you took the exam. How'd you find out you passed? What was that whole, how did that whole thing go down? And if I remember correctly, California is the worst because you guys find out last too, don't you? Do. In terms of all the states. Not only do we find out last, but we find out like right before Thanksgiving. Oh. So like, it's just like throwing salt in the wound. Cause it's like, Hey, you failed. And now you have to tell your whole freaking family at Thanksgiving dinner, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So the second time I, it was really cool because I told myself like, you know, I'm really proud of you. I literally had this conversation with myself. Like, I'm really proud of you. Cause even if you failed, you did everything humanly possible to pass this test. And that's my motto, even till this day, like in trial, did you do everything humanly possible to get the results you wanted or the fair results? And if I can say yes, then I can sleep at night. Right. I'm proud of myself. Like I did what I had to do. If the jury doesn't, you know, agree that's fine. That's up to them, you know? And, and I, and I sort of had the same thought process with the bar the second time around, but Oh my God, it was so stressful. That day is so stressful, right? Like you, it's just next level. I actually had my little brother check for me cause I was so nervous. Um, and he was just like, this girl's crazy. Okay. I'm going to check. So he checked it for me and he was like, um, okay, you passed. And I was like, no, you're lying. You know, like, he's like, yeah, you passed. That so was great. I was like crying, hugging. I think we were like play fighting each other. Cause you know, you're just so happy. So it was, it was wonderful. That's awesome. So you passed the bar. What year is it? And then, and then you went into, um, you went into workers comp defense. That was your first oh, yeah. stop along the way. Yeah. Right. So I passed the bar. We graduated, I graduated law school in 2010 I failed that 2010 bar. So then I retook it, um, 2011. And then I got sworn in June of 2011. And before I left for law school, I needed a job and I just did one of those, like, you know, those temp 
agencies. Um, I interviewed there and I'm like, listen, I don't care. I just need to make some money, like some cash. Um, so they sent me to this law firm kind of near my house in Santa Ana. Um, and it was a workers' compensation firm employment, right? And they did defense work. And I just was like a little, you know, file clerk, made copies, did their mail. And I just got really cool with the partner and the manager of the firm. And they were wonderful. Um, it's called Glenn Silverian Associates. They're still open. Fantastic. Um, very successful firm. And I always just kept in touch with them over the years. And I think this was something you and I talked about before we started recording was how it is to keep in touch with like your men or your old bosses or people who've just sort of guided you because one, it makes them feel great. Like, okay, you know, I helped this kid and I've made a difference, but two, you always want to keep those connections because you never know if you need them in the future. And, you know, if, if you need their help or even just like a simple reference. Um, so when I passed in 2011, that was during like the big hiring freeze, nobody was hiring. I knew I wanted to be a DA at this point. Um, or I had that sort of planted cause I did a lot of like moot court, um, trial advocacy stuff in law school. So that was sort of, you know, really where I wanted to head towards. Um, and then I, you know, externship when we finished law school before the bar at the DA's office. And I really fell in love with the whole concept of being a prosecutor. Um, but nobody was hiring. Um, so I luckily had always kept in touch with this law firm that I, you know, worked for and he was so wonderful. And he's like, you know, Glenn, come over, I'll train you, I'll mentor you. And I went over there and I worked with them for a year and a half and it was great. And I learned some great skills, um, as an attorney and, you know, in, in, in private world, it's just a different animal because (laughs) gloves are off, right? Like it's about money. Um, it's not about literally someone's like livelihood as in like the criminal world. Um, so I got great experience with working with like difficult attorneys, a very combative environment, which I think really ended up preparing me for being a prosecutor later on. So I worked there for about a year and a half. Um, and I kept applying to different DA offices in California. There's this thing where to be a DA, you have to have done as a law clerk, either a preliminary hearing, a jury trial or a bench trial. And if you hadn't done one of those three, you don't even get past the first like initial like interview. You can't get to wow. the first interview. Right. So what happened was when I in when I did my externship as a law clerk, they put me on this really, you know, profound sort of trial that lasted like months and months and months. And it was like a quadruple homicide. And it was really intense and fascinating. And my role in the trial was, you know, they flipped the driver of the homicide and she was like a young girl. I mean, she was 19, um, but she was the driver of the shooters. And she ended up being our key witness. And so my job was to take care of her and make her feel comfortable and, you know, help her change. And, um, and so I couldn't ever leave working on that trial to do a preliminary hearing or to do a, you know, second chair, a, a trial with, you know, someone in a, in the misdemeanor unit, but that backfired ended up backfiring. Right. Because I couldn't get into, you know, the job that I wanted because of that. So while I was working at, um, the Silveri Law Firm, there I met my new mentor. Her name is Beth. Um, she's 
I'm sorry, her name is Beverly. <laughs> her name is Beverly Hellison. She's still a dear friend of mine. And she knew I really wanted to be a DA. And she's like, listen, you were going to do a trial here. And I'm like, how? And she's like, we're going to do it together. And so she's like, this is how you become a DA. Like you have to do some trials. So she took me under her wing and <clears throat> she made sure we did some trials together. She trained me. She's probably done like more trials in that field than anybody still to this day. And she was wonderful. And she's like, okay, you've done your trials, go apply again. So I applied to be a prosecutor um, in Ventura County, which is like right um, south, little south of um, Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about an hour and a half from Los Angeles County. And that's actually where my husband um, was born and raised. So I'm like, great. I love Ventura. Let's try it. And they hired me. And I was the most, I was the least experienced person in my hiring class. Um, it's funny. They hired me as like extra help because I didn't have experience. And so I didn't get hired um, like full time. And the only difference was I didn't get benefits, you know? Um, and that only lasted like three months. And once I, once I started doing trials and proving myself, they brought me on full time. So I stayed in Ventura for quite a while. Wow. That's, that's an impressive foot in the door story, you know, because people see <laughs> yeah. where you are, where you are now, but yeah, you know, how hard it is to get into a position that at the entry level even doesn't even pay well. People want to be there for the experience and for doing what they do. There's still such a high demand, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, and it's, I feel like it's still like that, you know? So then, okay, then you went to, you, you know, I'm this show I'm talking law and everyone, I think everyone, when they think about lawyer, they think about going to work where you work, right? Yeah. Or where yeah. you used to work, that that yeah. famous LA courthouse, you know, uh-huh. with the Lincoln lawyer and with, with yeah. everyone else. Yeah. Uh, so what was that like? So they're funny. They're actually filming the Lincoln lawyer right now, the next season. And it's right outside our building in downtown. All right. So I'm at Ventura. I had the most incredible experience there. I mean, those are like some phenomenal prosecutors in that County. So benefit of working in a smaller County is you really are mentored. They've watched every trial that I did. Um, they train you, they help you. I mean, it's like, it was probably till this day, the most supportive, um, environment that I've ever been a part of like career wise. Um, I still call those DAs till this day. I mean, I haven't worked there in what, seven years. And I, and I still call a lot of them when I'm having like an issue in court or, you know, something I've never worked on and they give me advice and they walk me through it. Um, but what happened was when I was in Ventura, I had our first child, um, our first baby and I'm like, okay, I got to go back home. Like I need the help. Um, you know, I can't be a a litigator and do all these trials and not have like family around to help me. And I really felt like my daughter was being neglected the first six months because I was working so much. Um, so I applied to the LADA and in my interview, (laughs) it could, this could have gone either way, Mark. I, 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 I sat down with them and they're like, well, why LA after all these years? And I said, listen, I applied with you guys, you know, six something years ago, and you didn't even give me a first interview. So since that day, I've done everything humanly possible to get to this point where I'm in front of you and you have no choice, but to hire me. Cause I've done everything I needed to do to become like your first pick. 
And they started laughing. And the DA at the time was like, this is, that's pretty ballsy of you. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And they hired me and they, and they're they were wonderful. And I really loved her. And, um, you know, so I go to LADA and, oh man, it is, it is night and day. I think from every other DA office, it's just crazy. It's busy. There's so many cases. There's so much going on. It's like, you feel like it's fire. Like there's fire every day that you got to handle or deal with. Um, you could be in a murder trial and then literally you finish the murder trial and then you're covering like a preliminary hearing court or you have to take a handoff like misdemeanor domestic violence trial like the next day. I mean, this has all happened. Very like LADA world. So, wow. So what, so what were you specializing in over there? Yeah. So what I did most was I stayed in um, like the general felony unit. And the cool thing about LA is if you're just in like the general units, you have access to, you know, different types of cases. So you could do, you know, domestic violence, felony cases, you can do gang cases and you can do um, murders. And my dream as a prosecutor was I always wanted to be like a murder trial attorney. Um, And so I worked my way up there and the last few years, you know, I was doing an array of things. You have, you know, you could be doing a gun possession trial, but I had murders assigned to me. And so I spent the majority of my time in Compton, um, which was the most wonderful experience. I loved it so much. It's very similar to law school, right? Like it's such an intense, busy, stressful environment, but everybody sort of, there's this collaborative mindset between the judges and the public defenders and the DAs were like, Hey, the only way we're going to survive this is if like we all there and you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. sort of have each other's backs. Even though it's a very adversarial sort of experience when you actually go to court and you're in trial. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was a wonderful experience. And so the last year I was at the DA's office, the last few trials I did were murder trials and I really felt like, okay, this is what I wanted to do. Like, this is where I wanted to, like, I wanted my career to sort of, you know, like strive towards. And I really did feel like I got there. What would you say is like the philosophy in Los Angeles, as far as prosecuting crimes? Like, I realize it's a very general question and I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of the office, but what I mean is like, you know, are, are lesser offenses, not prosecute as hard? Are you heavier on diversion programs? Uh, is it that there's so much crime that you're really hitting the big stuff hard? Or how, how would you say it's attacked? Yeah, so, you know, that's a really loaded question. So there's a, de- a few different ways to look at it. I think my first week at the LADA, I was so impressed and blown away by how progressive the DAs are in Los Angeles compared to other counties. You know, and I had the experience of being in another county and I had a lot of friends in Orange County and Riverside County DA's offices where they didn't have the same experiences that I was going through in LA where, you know, I could genuinely go to my boss and be like, Hey, listen, like, this is not okay. I know that this guy committed this crime, but like, there's more to it. Right. So this case is over and I I can talk about it now. But I had a case where it was a really serious, you know, um, assault with a deadly weapon, um, causing great bodily injury. And it and it would have been the suspects, the defendant, because it was he was filed on his third strike. So we would he would have gone away for, you know, a very long time if convicted. And we were at 
the trial status. We were at the trial part and I, you know, I get the case before trial. So I have about three months to work it up. And I'm like, just going all in on this trial because basically the defendant and the victim, they're cousins. And what you see in the video is the defendant shows up to where the victim's at. He's at a party and for no reason, he clocks the victim in the face. The victim falls straight to the ground, you know, so he cold clocks him. And then he just beats the crap out of the victim. He has a knife, um, but he beats the victim so bad. Victim goes fully unconscious, breaks his nose, breaks his ribs, breaks a bunch of bones. Um, they thought he was dead at the scene. I mean, it was like, it was brutal. It was a, a brutal attack. Um, and then the defendant walks away, he runs away and that's that. Um, so victim had, you know, significant injuries, um, just like a really, you know, really awful sort of beat down. So I get the case and I'm like, okay, I got to meet with this victim. And the victim starts to be like dodgy and cagey. And I'm like, what is happening? And I pull the victim's record and I realize, okay, he has, you know, some sexual, you know, misconducts that he's done in the past. Um, where he actually got fired from the job because he did something um, along that lines. And so I called the defense attorney and that's always my motto, like get on the same page as the defense attorney. So I know, you know, my thing is like, hey, be honest and open with me so I can try to get, you know, the fair thing as a result, whether that's we go to trial or we can come up with a fair, you know, resolution. And the defense attorney is like, listen, your victim raped and sodomized my client, the defendant, when they were children. And I was like, oh no. So he starts telling me like, you know, the cousins lived together that when they were kids and the victim who was a lot older than the defendant, he used, he for years would, you know, um, rape the defendant and his brother. And so the defendant now obviously has all these you know, mental health issues and anxiety and depression from like what he experienced as a child and the defendant hates the victim. And I'm like, damn. So I'm like, okay, do you have the brother's contact information? So I called the brother, a remarkable man. He lived in another state, has a great job, no criminal history. And yeah, he's like, it happened. I go to intense therapy. You know, I've handled it very differently than my brother. Like I handled it and I've channeled pain and anger into, you know, professional like world where I can help people where my brother, his channel was, you know, he got involved in the law and sort of has been spiraling, you know? And so I'm like, okay, this is hard, right? Because mm -hmm. some people would call this poetic justice, right? Like the victim had what was coming to him, but as a prosecutor, you know, you really balance like what's the, our goal, a good prosecutor's goal is I need to find out the truth, right? It's not about convictions. It's not about getting a guilty my whole family knows that I hate when people say congratulations after I get a verdict because it doesn't feel good. You know, like this, nothing is about happens in criminal law, right? Like two people are significantly affected and changed by a case. Victims life, if they survive, will never be the same or in their family, if they die, will never be the same. And the defendant's life will never be the same and their family will never be the same. And it's just mm -hmm. a really sad all around sort of concept but as a prosecutor, if you can do the right thing, always do the right thing and stay focused and find out the truth and then do the fair and just thing as a result, that's what matters, right? So I'm like, I need to sit down with this victim. So I sit down with this victim and he basically alludes to 
the fact that he doesn't want to testify, but I should put on his mom and his sister and his wife and put on everybody on the stand except him. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, I don't want to be there. And I'm like, okay, but I'm prosecuting this man. It's the third, you know, he could go away for a really long time. Like you, you're the victim. You have to testify. Um, and he's being really cagey and insinuates that it's because he knows that they're going to bring up stuff when he's on the stand. So I'm like, okay, this happened. He, he did it. So the point of this long, you know, case was it's during Christmas. I'm like, God, what is the right thing to do? I don't think that this, you know, what, what he did to the victim was awful, but I don't think that this defendant should go to wait, go away for life for doing this. You know what I mean? So I sat down with the head deputy at the time and I, you know, explained my dilemma and he was like, what do you want to do? Which nobody asks line prosecutors. Nobody asks that question mark. It's always what, this is what the policy is. This is what we're required to do. Too bad, so sad, go do the trial. That's usually what most of my bosses tell me. Mm-hmm. He broke the law. I don't care. You're going to do the trial, right? So this boss says, what do you want to do? And I'm like, listen, he needs to do, he needs some serious help. He's never had mental health help, never had mental health counseling, has never had any sort of, you know, they have like sexual compulsion class. They have different sort of array of stuff that you can do with um, victims of, you know, sexual molestation and rape. And, 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 and me and the defense attorney looked into, you know, his prior cases and nobody has ever gotten this man help. And I'm like, he just needs help. And so we came up with this really cool disposition where he wouldn't stay in custody anymore. He'd be out on, you know, felony probation. So we could keep an eye on him to make sure he wouldn't harm the victim again, but he would get severe or really intense therapy and like help and assistance for his mental health. And I stayed on the case for three years while he was on probation and I would go to court every single time he was set for, you know, an update or a review. And we always make sure that the victim is on board with, you know, the resolution. Sometimes the victims aren't. Ultimately, it's up to the prosecutor to still make the decision. But we really, really try to get the victims, um, you know, understanding where, where we're leaning towards and why. And this victim was on board with it. He was okay with it. He just said, as long as I don't have to testify, which again, red flag. <laughs> and then he's like, as long as he stays away from me, I just want my criminal protective order. He's like, I don't want my cousin to go away for life either, right? So that really helped with the decision. You get to actually make stuff like that happen, you know, with the boss that I had at the time. I know some courthouses in LA can be different, um, but but you actually have that possibility, which I think is incredible. And I wish that more prosecutorial agencies were like that. This is much better of an answer than I thought I would get. I thought <laughs> you were either going to sidestep it or give some sort of canned answer. So... <laughs> Yeah, like a, a lot of what you said, what I take from it, what you always hear prosecutors say, the quintessential line is the victim's not my client, the state is my client. And <clears throat> I think in a way, the way you're you're you explain that story, you were still acting as if your state was your client, right? Because these decisions, they don't happen in a vacuum. So right. If your objective was to just stick the screws to, you know, the defendant to the furthest extent of the law, like there would have been other, you know, effects that would have flowed from. So you looked at it holistically. Right. And you did what was really in the best interest of the state, which was 
rehabilitate, re rehabilitate someone and, you know, don't do anything unethical. And, and, and I, you know, I think that's a great, great uh, explanation to, right. that shows that that office was, you know, willing to listen. Yeah. You know, and, and it's crazy because it, some people say, you know, it's all, I have a lot of really close public defender friends and they're like, you know, it just, it's, it's not fair because it ranges from courthouse to courthouse. And, and in that courthouse, that, that head deputy, he's retired now, but he was notorious for that. Like, let's just do the right thing. What is the right thing? What do you want to do? You know, the case better than everybody. And sure, this might be outside of policy, but I'm confident enough in this DA to know that like, this is the right thing to do, regardless of these ridiculous policies that like, you know, certain DAs make where there's no wavering off of them. You know what I mean? Cause those, those hardline rules, they don't work. Right. Cause every case is so different. If we did this hardline rule of third strike, a third strike, go to trial and convict him, would that be the right thing to do on that case? Absolutely not. You know, and that would be us following policy. Um, right. But it, it really takes someone extraordinary to be like, no, 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 let's do the right thing on this case, even though it could be outside of policy, right? Um, and I hope that, you know, over time, DAs adopt, adapt to that. I know LA is going through a lot of changes right now. And one of the difficult parts is there's these hard line rules that you have to follow and it just it doesn't work. It's failing the victims. It's failing society. It's failing, you know, the public and it's failing defendants, right? Like it's, it, it's not fair for anyone involved in the criminal justice system. And I just hope that eventually we can get to that right point as prosecutors. Yeah. All right. So the, the time is yours. I want you to give you a few moments to, to promote anything you want yourself, your firm, your brand, your hustle, your cause, whatever that may be. Yeah. So my cause is give back, like be the person that you always wish that you had as a kid or as, you know, a college student or a law student or a young person in your career, be that person for other people, you know, because until we start, you know, supporting each other to the fullest and like pushing each other, especially people that, you know, are underrepresented, you know, in society, like be there for those people, um, make a difference, take time out of your day to support that person, to push them, to help them believe in themselves when nobody else is believing in them, especially when they don't believe in themselves. Um, you know, always strive to get there in life because that's what really matters, right? Is just helping and protecting people in society and being there for one another. Like that's, that's the core of humanity. You know what I mean? Like that love, that safety, that protection. And I just hope that in the legal field, we can continue to do that for each other um, and help those who, you know, don't think that they can do it or make it. Yeah. And you've been very outspoken about being in support of women in particular, right? And yes. women with minorities, uh, minority women as well, correct? Yes. Yes. That's major for me. I really try to, luckily my husband, you know, he's a teacher and he works with, um, you know, high school kids who are thinking about going into the legal field or maybe even not. I go back to my local high schools. I talk to students there in like their political science classes or their law programs. And, you know, I'm like, look, I came, I'm, I was you, <laughs> like I was you, no one believed in me. I was like, I wasn't the smart sibling, you know, I wasn't the, I wasn't the all-star student, but I made it, I'm here, you know, I did it. And women in particular were always 
you know, I don't care how, what year we're in, we're, we're never valued like men. I'd still go through this at work. Like, you know, the guys always given the benefit of the doubt. The man's always like talk to you, you know, differently than we are. I still get called sweetie and honey in court. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I want women to know like, Hey, we have your back. You can do this. You can be a badass. You can run this show. You know what I mean? You don't need to wait for permission. Like do the damn thing, you know, make your own career, set your own path. Um, especially women of color who, you know, are significantly undervalued and underrepresented in the legal field. And I hope that like, I can help them realize like, shit, if she can do this, I can do this. Like we can do this together, you know? Yeah. So this podcast, right. I've everyone, everyone, every single person that I went to law school with has a story to share, right. Right. Even if they didn't make it, um, they have a story to share share that's worth listening to. Um, but one, one of the, when, when I chose my guests, one of the things I wanted to do is I actually wanted to show how diverse this profession is both, you know, we're both talking about ethnically, racially, um, but where people live, what they do, how they got here. Um, it's not all wearing a fancy suit in a high rise in New York city, right? It's right. It, it, it could be anything. Um, and it's such a vast profession and everyone, there is a place for everyone. Sometimes, unfortunately, you have to fight for it, but the, a place exists. So I'm glad that you, you know, spoke up for, for some of the people that, that you believe are underrepresented. Absolutely. Um, all right. So teach me something legal, right? Tell, uh, explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old. Uh, something, dispel a myth, some, share something for the audience that they may either know or don't have the full picture of or whatnot. I think um, it sort of goes into that case that I was telling you about, but a big myth is like what a prosecutor does, like what is their role? Um, when you ask just like a common person on the street, like if you interviewed a bunch of people, they'd be like to lock everybody up, to put everybody in jail, get all the bad guys off the street. But that's actually not what we do, right? It's so much more. And and again, the caveat, a good prosecutor, right? Our role is to be fair and make just decisions and take a sort of holistic approach to each and every case and make sure that like the right thing happens. And whenever I give like lectures at, you know, high schools or colleges, my, you know, I always emphasize this, a good prosecutor, it's just as important to dismiss a case against an innocent person or dismiss a case against someone where maybe they did do it, but I cannot prove it. I cannot meet the elements of the crime. That is just as important as a prosecutor as is getting a conviction. Someone who did commit the crime and I proved that case being a reasonable doubt. And I and I really wish that people, um, you know, that would understand that a little bit more because I think it's a big misconception in the legal, you know, in the, in the world of understanding what DAs do is, so many of my friends, all my friends are like this. I mean, I don't have friends who are those, you know, and there are out there prosecutors who just want to rack up their stats and get convictions. Everyone that I know that I associate with, we're all the same. It's not about convictions. It's not about putting people away in prison. You know, in some cases it is some cases like, listen, if this is the third person you've murdered, we're going to trial on your murder. And 
you should not be insistent. You know what I mean? That's a mm-hmm. different story. But I'm talking about like, we really try and evaluate each case, case by case and figure out what is the right thing to do on this case. And sometimes it's it's just as, hey, I can't prove this case against this guy or this isn't the person who did it. I don't have enough evidence to prove it's him, right? And we need to dismiss it. And other times it's, he did it. We're going to trial and he will get it for this. But I do have to say, on the flip side, I have seen prosecutors do that whole thing where if there's contradictory evidence, they'll spin it a certain way um, or they'll minimize things. I've seen it happen, you know, and it's it could be dangerous, right? It could it, it could be dangerous. Um, and it's just why this is why you need to push, you know, certain people of the community into the legal field, because if you have people from your own community, your own background, your own environment who are in the legal field, who are defense attorneys or prosecutors, you know, your the results will be better, safer. You know what I mean? Just because it's someone who's not from fucking a different universe, right? Like it's gotta be hard if you're from the East coast, Midwest where, you know, oh my God, our, my, Mark, our first week of law school, mm. I met this friend. He's from Philly, Scranton. No, I'm sorry. Scranton, Pennsylvania. Okay. And he said, I think I know who you're talking about. Uh-huh. And he meets Eddie because Eddie, my husband, who's um, who's Mexican, comes down to visit and he meets Eddie and he goes, I'm not going to lie to you. You're the first Mexican person I've ever met. And I'm like, what? You're like 24. This is the first Mexican you've ever met? Like, that's crazy, right? But that's his experience. That's where he's from. That it's not, there's nothing bad about it. It's just his life. Um, if he became a prosecutor in LA, he would have a very difficult time, right? Because in Los Angeles, the majority population, I mean, we're so diverse here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um and I think it would be difficult if you have people who never, you know, didn't grow up or wasn't around or didn't, you know, weren't used to people of color. And now you're asking to prosecute them. That could be a problem. Right. Um, and that's why I really push for, you know, people in your community, push them, motivate them, inspire them to come back to the community when they're done with whatever career they do, you know, and be a part of that community and make sure that it's changing in the right direction. Cause you want people who understand that area and that particular community to represent them in, in, in different careers. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's, I don't know if things have changed, but what you're describing to me, definitely the case of the prosecutor's office, but it always hit me with the police force. And this is what I mean. I, I went to school with a lot of kids that wanted to be police officers and then become a police officer is very difficult where I came from in Northern California, pay was well, but a lot of people applying really hard to get into. And it was like, you had to have this special blend, right? This unique blend. Like you had to be, you had to pass the written test. You had to pass the physical test. You had to answer the questions correctly, you know, in uh, the board interview. But then even then you had to like live this weird life where like you never, you know, you never gotten any, trouble you didn't try certain drugs maybe, maybe they've loosened that but it definitely used to be that way and then it's this candidate's coming in and it's like i get it, i get it that you don't want corruption on the force but then you also have people that have no understanding of how the real world works and they're the ones you know 
Yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that, um, it's changed a little bit, but (laughs) I agree. It's like, you want people with real life experiences, but like, also you can't hire them if they've had real life experiences, you know? Um, yeah, because I think for the longest time you couldn't even smoke marijuana. If you smoke marijuana, you're out. That's exactly where I'm going from. I think society's recognized it's way less of a problem than it was, but like, Thinking about it now, if you're like, wait a minute, you excluded that perfectly good guy because he told you he did weed X many times, like that would have been an amazing police officer. He could never be one. Right. It's so funny you say this because I, um, when I was at the DA's office in LA for a while, I did a assignment in the Long Beach courthouse. And at the time, the chief of police there was notorious for hiring like homegrown kids, like kids from Long Beach or the area, the area code 562. So that 562 area. And I found it so fascinating because when I did trials with the with the officers who grew up in the area, even if they were white police officers, they connected with the jury on a completely different level than an officer from, let's say, Northern California or another state, you know? And I I found it so fascinating um, because <clears throat> I had this case where, you know, it's felon in possession of a firearm and the defense, and it was two white police officers and the defense attorneys were just, the defense attorney was going in on them, basically accusing them of racism, Um, and, but there was no evidence of that. Everything was on body camera, like everything from the second they left their station to the second, the, the defendant was booked. The entire thing was on body cam. Right. Mm. Um, and so there was no evidence of it and it happened. Listen, racism, it is, it's there. It happens more often than we would like, right. More often than we even hear about, um, in the criminal justice system. However, there was no evidence of that in this case with the defense attorney. That was his angle. Um, And I wasn't stressed because I met these boys, not boys, men. I met these officers and I'm like, they're good dudes. And I think that they'll speak for themselves. And they got on the stand. They were honest. They talked about their experience. They got attacked, but they stayed composed. Um, You know, they talked about, and it ended up coming out that they're from there, where they went to high school was there. Um, And then their body cams ended up coming out for different reasons. The jury watched it. And keep in mind, this is an L.A. jury who is notoriously skeptical of law enforcement off the bat. Right. Um, And after the after the jury convicted and after the trial, a few of them stayed and they're like, we really liked your officers. We trusted them. We liked them. They were fair. They were kind. You know what I mean? And so I think that's a product of you know, hiring people from the community, um, you know, and, and even if it's the white person, it, it makes a difference, right? Yeah. That's they are they grow up around that community. They understand people on a different level, a different wavelength than someone who's not from here, you know? Yep. There's one last thing I wanted to ask you about. I think you'd be the perfect person to ask. I got this weird hot take. So you're going to be like, what? But then <laughs> here, here where I'm going with this. Did you okay, watch okay. the, did you watch the Dahmer? Uh, miniseries on no. Netflix. Oh, you didn't? <laughs> no, no. All right. Well, I'll okay. ask you. I wish you did. I'll okay. ask you anyways. Okay. So I'm the only, I might be the only person, and I don't mean this in a weird way, okay. that finished watching that and actually felt kind of positive about society. And, and okay. the, this is this is where I'm going with it. If you watch it, you know, um, 
all it's it's terrible. It, all the stuff he does is terrible. And the worst part about it is you're like, how did he not get caught way earlier? Right. What I'm seeing throughout the whole thing is what what I'm saying is this would have never happened today because, like, for example, sentencing guidelines would have prevented like an earl- earlier issue where he got a slap on the wrist from happening. You know, like Megan's law would have protected you know, would have notified people about him and kept him out of places. Social right. media would have went viral, you know, when right. he did certain things. Right. Um, and I just feel like in this weird, perverse way, it's like giving society credit. Like, look at all the horrible things that we let happen. Yeah. Look at legislature and, yeah. and advances in society that we've made it that would prevent this monster today from doing what he did, or at least caught him way earlier. Right. Right. So I sort of have this this thing in 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 the legal field, but especially in criminal law, that unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of mistakes before we get it right. But unfortunately, the only way to get it right is the lot of mistakes. Right. Like we learned so much um, from the bad things. Right. Like everybody always says, like, when you go through something hard, that's going to be your biggest motivation in life. I think that unfortunately the legal field the same way, like think about how much they learn from, um, that Dahmer case, right? Like, Dan, we could have done this. We could have done this. You know what I mean? And they probably legislation and society has like evolved because of those kind of cases. Right. Um, yeah, I actually agree with you. And it, it, it does sort of as, as insane as that case is. And I know the case, well, I just haven't watched the documentary. Um, I agree with you. It, it, it sort of gives you a sense of hope, like, okay, we really have evolved. Things have changed so much since, you know, back in the day. Um, but I, I really do believe that the crappy part about that is, is like bad things have to happen for that to get there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you won't see it in the moment, but years and years and years later, then you learn, you know, there's a big joke in the DA's office and I should caveat it with, I don't work for the LAD anymore. Um, so nothing I say represents them, but one of the big sort of training materials, um, in LA is the OJ Simpson trial. And they, they tell you in training, like, this is what you don't do. And then they go through the OJ Simpson trial, you know, and it, and I remember being like, damn, like, but if you think about it, they're right. You know, like, um, and, and I think that really the LADA office, which is the largest prosecutorial agency, I think for sure in the country. And I also think in the world, um, the leading case that really transformed that office is that case, you know, is the OJ trial. Like it was a disaster and, you know, we all know what happened, the outcome on the case, but I think the office really sort of transformed the way that they do things and run that office because of that difficult situation, that difficult trial, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sad that they had, everyone had to go through that to, to get where, you know, things are now, but sometimes that's what it's, that's how you learn it's the biggest learning lesson yeah yeah no i i totally agree so manisha i really appreciate your time you i i have a feeling you have lots lots more stories to share really really (laughs) appreciate you getting up early and and you know uh taking your time share your story with us and you were really honest and candid there's i think there's so much 
that people can take from this. So thank you. I hope so. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Need a lawyer? Are you having financial, criminal, or family challenges? Call or text the Mark Kachi Law Firm, 215-439-7899.